All right, well, good morning. Let's open up with prayer, and we'll jump into our little time of study. Let me restate that. All right. Father, thank you so much for the body of Christ coming together in this place, all the people you've brought to be here to worship together, to sing praises to your name, Father, for the good, amazing work that you've done through Jesus Christ. And to you, Lord Jesus, for your love, for your commitment, for your everlasting presence with us all the time, and how much you care for us. We pray for your guidance uh, collectively and individually that um, you would lead us into your will in daily, daily activity and lead us to opportunities to share the good news, open our hearts and minds to see the opportunities that lay before us every day that we don't need you to show us. And so we, we pray that you would bless our time this morning, resulting our hearts and minds in unity of understanding of the good news and what you've accomplished and who you are. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at the book of Hebrews this morning. So, the book of Hebrews. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning because I've been doing a series by going through the gospel sort of in most of the books of the New Testament over the past several weeks. And so we've been skipping around covering large sections of scripture and this will be the same this morning. And so I want you to have your minds prepared to follow along. However, anytime you read, and most of you who study with me know this, uh, obviously if you read the scriptures, you have to know who your audience is. None of us here have lived through what the people uh, lived through during the time the book of Hebrews was written, right? None of us were born under the law. None of us worshiped in the temple. None of us were born into one of the 12 tribes of Israel, at least as far as we know, right? And so uh, we don't understand from an emotional or historical standpoint what it's like to read this book. Like, we just understand it like uh, we're just looking at, you know, uh, God did not uh, send one of his angels to die, you know, blah, 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 you know, in chapter one. Uh, it's, it's written to who? Hebrews. The Hebrews, not the Jews, to the Hebrews, because the Hebrews were the 12 tribes of Israel, right? As, as they would see it. Uh, and so these, these 12 tribes are going to understand this book, and it's written distinctly to them. When you read Romans, though there are Hebraic sections to Romans, it's primarily to the, to the Gentile. When you read First and Second Corinthians, it's profoundly Gentile. Uh, when you read Galatians, it's a mix. It's a Gentile church with the, the Jews mixed into it, or the Israelites mixed into it, trying to pervert the gospel in that, that area. So you're going to find in a lot of books like Colossians, you're going to find a mix like Galatians, a mix. Not as so much in Ephesians. Just a, a note about the separation, uh, the no more separation between Jews and Gentiles. And so, uh, but the, big, the book of Hebrews is distinctly Hebraic, right? James is written to who? The 12 tribes scattered abroad. It's the first verse, right? 
to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So who are James written to? The 12 tribes, right? It's not written to the Gentiles. It's written to the Jews. And we peek in the window and we look at the way he speaks to them, which is why a lot of these books in the Hebrews and in James and a lot of Hebraic books, like Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. So when he says brethren and then says that if you don't believe this, you could die, go to hell, he's not speaking to believers. He's speaking to Jewish brethren. So you have to understand that. When Paul says brethren, he's speaking to Gentiles, and he only ever means <laughs> believers. So uh, when you read the book, you have to understand who your audience is, and you have to understand that you are not this audience, right? Uh, however, that being said, we're looking in the window of this discussion, and it is a, a discussion that, like I said, that will be very Hebraically represented, Tribe of Levi, tribe of Judah, Melchizedek, all this, the, the priestly service. And if you're not familiar with that, you may struggle to keep along. We're recording it, so you're more than welcome to go back and listen to the recording. So I am going to cover a lot of material. If you miss something, then we can, if you can raise your hand, you can ask a question. Um, and if we need to answer that question later on, we will. But for the sake of time, we're going to, we're going to push through because I want the bigger picture of the message to be communicated this morning. And the book of Hebrews, I know everybody thinks, oh, Romans is a difficult book. It's extremely simple. And Hebrews is the same thing. It's a very simple book. It basically breaks up into two parts. Who is Jesus and what did he accomplish? Right? First six chapters is who is Jesus and the seven and following is kind of what did he accomplish. And, and, uh, and so we're going to look at the second half of this book. Um, none of us here are doubting who Jesus is, at least. I hope not. But... The second half, in chapter 7, starting in chapter 7, we won't need to, I won't read all the first 10 verses of this, I'll just talk to you about it, because you can read it on your own, it's very simple. In the Psalms, Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament. And so, Melchizedek was a priest, and this was before the 12 tribes of Israel, right? For the 12, 12 tribes of Israel. There, it was just Abraham. There was no Israel. There were no Jews. There was no Mosaic law. There was nothing. And so Melchizedek was a priest and a king and uh, presumptively a prophet. We don't know that part, but probably the case. In the tribe of in the tribes of Israel, in the law, you could not be a priest and a king. It was illegal. What happened when Saul tried to offer a sheep? He lost his kingdom because he went against what God had ordered. He had restricted their system to being prophet and priest or prophet and king but not prophet or not priest and king. They could not be a priest and a king at the same time. Is that clear? Pretty simple reality. This is very important because when Jesus came, he was of the tribe of Judah. And who was the only tribe you were allowed to be a priest from? Levi. Levi, right? So that means when the change of priest comes, that means the change of priesthood comes, or priesthood comes, change of priest, change of priesthood, change of law. 
And this is what he's going to talk about. It's a very simple concept. You just have to get your mind into a, to a historic Jewish mindset of how Melchizedek related to them and so forth and so on. His argument, of course, is that Abraham paid homage to Melchizedek. Therefore, technically, Levi would have paid homage to Melchizedek from a technical sort of genealogy standpoint. And therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Levi. And thus, all that came from Levi, he is greater than all them. That means he's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than all of them. His priesthood was greater because his priesthood was one that Abraham paid tithes to. So he just uses a simple illustration of honor. The one who honors up, the greater man is the one that's up, right? So that's the little discussion here. And so, the, but the topic of this whole thing, all right, I want you to get your minds right because you're going to see this over and over and over. And this is going to be the thing from chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, which we're going to cover all those chapters this morning in, in part, is the issue of perfection. That's the discussion. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said what? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You cannot enter heaven unless you are what? Born from above. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. In other words, if you're not a new creation, born from above, you don't see heaven and you don't enter heaven, period. Remember we talked about this, the bottom line. I don't care what religion you are, what denomination you think is important. The bottom line is, if you're not born from above, you do not see or enter heaven. So it doesn't matter what you think you know. It only matters if that has happened. Right? And this is the discussion here. Instead of using new creation, instead of saying sons of God like Galatians 3, instead of saying children of God like 1 John, right, or the book of John or everywhere, right? Instead of saying the body of Christ, instead of saying... Uh, a new anthropos, a new man, instead of saying a new heart, instead of saying a new, uh, well, he does use the word conscience here because he's Hebraic. Peter uses the word conscience. Different word than mind, new mind, right? Instead of those terms that Paul uses so often, and Peter, even the word soul, in this, in this instance, it's very much like John 3, where he says, unless you're born from above, you don't see, you don't enter. In his context, he just says, unless you gain perfection, you don't enter, right? You don't enter. And we have to gain perfection in the spirit first, spiritual perfection, and you have to gain spirit, flesh perfection at the, at, the, at the resurrection, right? Our body is made perfect. It's fit for heaven. It's perfect. It's, the Heavenly Father is perfect. So this is the discussion. The discussion on the floor in Hebrews is perfection. This is what he's going to constantly point to, and this is what everything crescendos to in chapter 10. He's perfected for all time, you know, uh, all, all time those whom he has set apart, 1014. So we go through the Melchizedek discussion because he's explaining the fact that the first law did absolutely nothing. It was an, a monopoly game that pointed to the need of the death of a human being, right? You can't kill a bull for a man. It's not a proper equation. A bull is not a man. Therefore, the bull doesn't pay for the man, and it's a game. Remember we talked about the law is a 1,200-year monopoly game. It did nothing. The blood meant nothing. It paid for no sins. It accomplished nothing. only thing it did do was point that somebody's got to die for people. And it can't be a bull. 
because no sins were ever forgiven on the basis of the blood of a bull, as we know from Hebrews 10, 1, right? And 2 and 3. So he says in verse 11, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, he says, why is he talking about perfection? Because that's what you have to gain spiritually in order to enter heaven, right? You have to be born from above. You have to be a new creation. You have to be a son of God, a child of God. You have to be all those things. You have to have a new mind and a new heart. All the things from Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Deuteronomy 30, all the promises of the new covenant that are mentioned, which is what he mentions in this very book, all of that points to the same reality, perfection. God is perfect. In him there is no darkness. He is light, right? So we have to gain that perfection. And so this discussion is about perfection, all of it from all the chapters, only point to one issue. And this whole discussion about priests and killing blood and all this stuff is just to compare which one did you gain perfection from and which one did you not gain perfection from, right? That's the whole discussion. So all this extra words, you can sum the whole book up as saying, well, because of the law, offering that, you didn't gain any perfection, therefore, you die, go to hell if without Christ. But... Because of Christ, him gaining perfection, if you put your faith in him and his perfection, you gain perfection, and therefore you're perfect, and now you can enter boldly into his throne. That's literally the sum of 7, 8, 9, and 10. That's the whole thing. Like, what I just said. And all we're going to do is see that what I just said is reiterated over and over and over and over and over until you get it. So, that's why it says, now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, on the basis of it for the people who received the law... Uh, what further need was there for another priest to arise in the order of Melchizedek and not uh, be designated according to the order of Aaron? If, if perfection could come through doing the law of Aaron, there would be no need for another priesthood to come up, right? It's very simple. It's childlike language here. And so, uh, and Melchizedek is important, again, like I said, because he was a priest and a king. Mel is the Hebrew word for, ki- uh, for, for a king. And Kazadik is the word for righteousness. And he was over the city of Salim, which is the word for peace. So he was a king and a priest and, a king, and uh, over a righteous king over a city of peace. And he was a priest. So someone else has to come, not in Aaron's order, to replace Aaron's order. And it has to be like Melchizedek where he can be both a king and a priest. Because perfection could not be accomplished through Aaron's priesthood, right? Verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there is also, it takes place a change of law. Of course, we know this to be true. Most people say we're saved by faith, not law. Well, that's true and false. We are saved by the law of faith, right? And it is, in fact, a law. Because if you do not believe what God believes and what Jesus believes, if you don't enter into their belief, then you are not saved and you will not be saved, period. Right? Because God is bound to the death of Jesus Christ. He cannot save a person apart from that or he damns himself. He paid for the price of humanity's sin by the death of his son. If he goes around that, he becomes a sinner. So we know this to be true. And so the law is a law he must hold to. 
He is bound to that law, and we are bound to that law. The law of belief is what he saves us on the basis of. So, um, he says, therefore, a change of priesthood and a change of priest happened, the law of faith. For the one concerning... for. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe uh, from which no one has officiated the altar. Obviously, that was 14, the tribe of Judah, right? For it is evident that our Lord was descended from, the, from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests, which is correct. Moses was from Aaron, I mean, from Levi. Aaron was from Levi. Moses never, never gave any permissions for any Judeans to function as a priest. It was illegal. Like I said, Saul lost the kingdom because he acted like a priest. He says, and this clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. There's the perfection again, right? Jesus Christ died to sin one time, once for all, right? Romans 6. He cannot die to sin again. He's not subject to sin again. He's unkillable. You can shoot him with a machine gun, he won't die. You can hit him with a big cannon, he will not die. He is unkillable, right? His body is indestructible. And so... That's the life we're looking for. We're looking for a life that our soul, our spirit, becomes indestructible. This is what Romans 6 talks about, right? He died to sin once for all. In the life that he lives, he lives to God. Therefore, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Either he's telling us to believe a lie or he's telling us to believe the truth. That if you die with him and you live with him, you have an indestructible life inside of you. And one day you will in your flesh. So he says, It is clear still if another priest arises according to okay, verse 16, who has become such, not on the basis, okay, we've got that, verse 17, for it is testified, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Of course, he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 4. For on the other hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because of its what? Weakness and what? Uselessness, because it was utterly useful. Can you spend monopoly money at the store? No, you cannot spend bull blood before God and Him accept it to get you into heaven, right? He's not going to pay for your sins with bull blood or turtle dove blood or something like that. It's worthless. It did nothing. It was useless. This says, for the law made nothing what? Perfect. Perfect. So we're talking about perfection. So the goal is to be perfect, to gain perfection in the spirit and one day in the flesh. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God because you don't draw near to God apart from being perfect. You have to be perfected. You have to be a child of God or born from above or a new creation or, i.e. here, perfected. Inasmuch as it is it was not without an oath, for indeed, uh, for they indeed became priests without an, without an oath, but he with an oath, 
through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So God swears that Jesus in Psalm 110.4 is going to be, or his son, his Messiah is going to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Aaron died, his children died. No one was a priest forever. They were a priest for a temporal time. Jesus is a priest forever. Therefore, his law can never be exchanged. So much more also, Jesus has become a, the, the guarantee of a better covenant. I'd say it's better, right? Because it's a covenant where we go to sleep and God does the work. It's like Abraham. Here, cut this animal there and I'll walk through it and you go to sleep. Right? It's a covenant where we just believe God did it after understanding it. Believe it in our heart, confess it in the discussion to him, and then he does the rest of the work to make us new. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, right? So, he says, the former priests, on the other hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Just what we just said, first priesthood, they could not, it wasn't an everlasting priesthood. They were dying off. And then he says, verse 24, we get to the point again, verse 25. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Then it says this, and this verse is translated poorly in most translations, so I'm going to help you with the translation of this so you understand what it's saying. Verse 25 says, Therefore, he is powerful. The word able is powerful. Most of the time when you see the word able, it's the word powerful. Therefore, he is powerful also to save, I'll just read it as it, forever those who draw near to God. This is what it actually says. The word forever is a phrase. And a lot of times people don't like to translate phrases because they're clumsy. It says, therefore, Jesus, or he is able to save unto this, semicolon, in the Greek, this is what it says. It says, he is able to save unto this, are you ready? Complete perfection. That's what it says in the Greek. All perfection or complete perfection. So they take those two words and they, or they just scramble them all up and they say, oh, how do we translate this? But forever. But forever is less impactful because the issue on the floor here is perfection. From verse 11 Going on down, we read it again, we saw it again, and here we are in verse 25, and he's continuing his theme. He is able, he's powerful to save unto this, colon, complete perfection. Then he says, those who draw near to God through Jesus Christ, through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, he goes on, uh, I'll read this last section here. He says, uh, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because, uh, because this he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints men as a high priest who are weak, but the word of the oath is God's promise, which came after the law, appoints a son, made what? 
perfect forever. You see that? He's perfect, and you've been perfected to all perfection in Him if you believe what He did. This theme is perfection, and He's just going to keep saying it, and we're just going to keep reading it, because that's the point of this whole thing. Um, we'll read a little bit of this. Chapter 8. I didn't plan on reading all of it, but maybe we might end up. And the main point, verse, chapter 8, verse 1. The main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who, is ta who uh, has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister um, in the sanctuary. And it actually says, oh, good grief. That's why they want to go through all this. It says, yeah, a minister, yes, it's not in the sanctuary. It should be a minister of the holy ones, is literally what it says. In other words, he's a minister of us. Not in the sanctuary, but he is in a sanctuary, but, and, now it says in the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Jesus is, there's three temples in the Bible, it's now in the new covenant. There's your body, which is 1 Corinthians 6, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. There is the collective saved body of Christ or the believers on the earth, and that is the temple of God. That's Ephesians chapter 2, the end. And then there is the temple where Jesus actually is physically, and that is in heaven. So he is there, as this says, the Lord pitched not men. For every high priest is appointed to offer up gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary for the priest these priests also to have something to offer. He offered himself. He's going to repeat himself. He just keeps doing that. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. He would have to be of the tribe of Aaron, uh, Aaron's lineage or Levi. And then he says the law, it says those who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. The whole point of this is heaven had to be cleansed. Most people don't understand this. Satan was allowed to be there, therefore sin was allowed to be there. Until Jesus died and paid for sin, Satan was, had to be allowed to be there because he was right about the fact that God had not killed Adam and therefore he was allowed to be the accuser. And as, Hebrew, as Revelation 12 says, it was after the ascension of Christ that Satan was thrown down permanently to the earth and left here, and he cannot ascend into heaven anymore. And so, in this case, it speaks to the fact that the Jews did a shadow work. Again, Monopoly game. I like to say Monopoly game because it has money and stuff, and you buy and you sell, and you play house, right? And if I take my shadow and I try to pick up my phone right now, I cannot pick it up. Because my shadow has no power to pick up my phone. This is how simple this is, right? Well, the Jews were playing a cutesy little game called, let's try to pick up the phone with my shadow for 1,200 years. And they never succeeded. And strangely enough, they thought that that game was so important that they killed the Messiah, who was the real thing, and actually thus fulfilled the real game. Right? Plastic. Huh? It's like trying to magnet plastic. Trying to put, yeah, pick up plastic with a magnet. 
You can play the game, but it doesn't do anything. A copy and a shadow. Why was it a copy? Because what we're going to read here in a little bit is that Jesus's blood had to be offered on an altar in heaven. This is where the real sacrifice took place. This is where the real inauguration of the new covenant took place. The blood had to be splattered on the walls of the temple in heaven in the same way that the blood had to be splattered on the tabernacle walls uh, in Moses' time. It's funny how you always see those pictures of the tabernacle. If you look it up on Google or something, it's all beautiful and shiny and lovely. And the tabernacles, you know, everything's shiny and the instruments are all shiny. That's not the way it looked at all. Because he had to cover everything with blood after it was beautiful and all pretty linen and all these pretty fabrics. And then he had to take blood and cover everything. So every time they saw the temple, it was this beautiful blood-covered thing and all the instruments were covered in blood and everything was covered as sticky, nasty, right? That was to remind you uh, that blood was going to need to be spilt to cover sins, right? The people. Every time they look at the, ta- the, the, the tabernacle, they see blood. And so, and they themselves, as we're going to read in chapter 9, were covered in blood to start the first covenant, right? Well, the real offering was where Jesus offered his body out of the tomb, took it up to heaven, spilled the blood there, and flung it all over the temple in heaven. Because the one on earth was a copy and a shadow of the real. And and on earth, as he's going to describe in chapter 9, they had to go through this big ceremony. Same thing had to happen in heaven. A big blood ceremony, but not with the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of Christ. So he says, just as Moses, continuing in verse 5, was warned by God when he was set about, uh, when, he, uh, when he was about to erect the, temp- the tabernacle. See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. It was a copy. What he's saying is it was a legit copy, that is to say, as far as on scale. We don't know if it was the exact scale or it was smaller. But whatever the case, it was at least to scale. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Yeah, I'd say it's much better to have a... I'm glad we don't live in the Deuteronomy 28 promises. If you do what's right, I'll bless your bowl and I'll bless your thing and your field will be nice and your pants won't fall apart and blah, blah, blah. You know, but, and, but if you do what's wrong, your fancy pants are going to fall off and your house is going to fall over and, you know, your walls are going to rot and blah, blah, blah. And your food's going to taste like poo and, you know, all that stuff that he says in Deuteronomy 28. That's not a very good promise. That means that I have to perform per- perfectly all the time in order to have God's favor upon me. That's, that's not a great covenant. It's a much better covenant if he says, I'll tell you what, I did it all. You enter into my rest, into my blessing, into my love by believing what I did for you. That's better, right? No, pretty simple. That's a much better promise. I like that. So he says, um, verse seven, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. It's very important for you to understand that the first covenant, that is to say the Mosaic covenant, was at fault. Why was it at fault? 
Because it, a bull is not a man, right? It's a game. It was a fault because he says, offer a bull for your sins, offer a sheep, a goat, a turtle dove, whatever you got, right? All right, a beetle. You know what I'm joking, you know? Your poor man, just a sip. Just want a sip of water. So just whatever you got, bring it, you know, that fits within this little thing. If you're poor, you can have a little bird, you know, and if you're wealthy, bring a bull and, or a sheep or whatever. So based upon your economics, you know, bring, bring the good stuff. And um, it was faultless because that everybody who brought that and all that tens of thousands of gallons of blood that was spilt over 1,200 years, not one sin was ever forgiven. So it was empty. It did nothing. So we had fault. For finding fault, verse 8 says, with them, that is to say the, the commandments, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will erect a new covenant, or effect a new covenant, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. Do you hear that? Not like the covenant. It is nothing. The new covenant is nothing like the old covenant. If people understood when people say, oh, they got the Ten Commandments on the courthouse or on the school. What the heck's that? I don't want the Ten Commandments. I want the Two Commandments, right? The one that saves and the one that guides, right? This is the commandment, that you believe in Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent, and love your brother as yourself. There's your two commandments. In First John, was it 123 or something like that? Three. Or 323. So, 321, maybe, somewhere around in there. Anyway, look around. But, whatever the case, those are your two commandments. One saves and one guides. Those are the ones that need to be on the schoolhouse, right? Send the kids back into the law days. What good is that going to do? So, what is it? That's going to excite some. I was right the first time. Yeah, that's good. 323. It says, On the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt... For they did not continue my covenant, and did not care, so I did not care for them, says the Lord. Of course they didn't continue his covenant. They were lost, and nobody can hold up to that level of what? Perfection. None of us would have done any better. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. Ah, I'll write on their hearts. Yes, and I will be their God and they will be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen for everyone his brother will uh, says, excuse me, and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me. From the least to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. He says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And why does he say that? Because this was written about 67 AD. And when did the temple get destroyed? 70. Three years later. It started in 67 AD. Immediately after this book was written, I bet it was the, when the pen stroke ended. A, 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 a rebellion broke out in Caesarea Philippi. I think my history is correct. It's been a long time. But I believe it was 19, it was eighty sixty seven nineteen and eighty sixty seven that a, a rebellion broke out in Caesarea Philippi, a Jewish colony rebelling against Rome. That rebellion sparked what resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem. 
three years later. And it didn't last, it lasted all the way till 19, uh, uh, 19, 1873, because it was on Mount Masada that the final 3,000 on the hill there died. Rome ended them there. So it started in 67 and it ended in 73. But it climaxed in 70. So it was three years before this book's prophecy was about to be fulfilled. And it did. It says it's about to disappear. And it did disappear. Because God said he was going to destroy the temple, Luke 21, Matthew, and so forth, and Jesus even spoke about it. They was going to destroy the temple and tear it down. And that's exactly what happened. He said not one brick would be left upon another. And the way that that happened was that the, um, though the commander, you have to read it in jo uh, Josephus, he, he was there on site watching the whole thing go down. He was a historian, a Jewish historian. But he was captured by the Romans and he had to write on their behalf of what was happening. And he was writing about it and he said, the commander said, do not harm the temple, don't burn, don't hurt the temple. And the guys got crazy and they burned the temple down. When they did that, Herod had these big gold shields on the wall. So the inside was adorned with gold. And when the temple, there's some water, there's tea or something. When the temple burned, the gold melted into the, into the block wall because they didn't use mortar on those big massive stones. They just fitted them so perfectly that they set proper. They would use these copper spikes that they would put in and it would hold it all together. Used them on columns. But they also used them on, on stone as well. And so the gold melted and went into the into the stones of the wall. And so the soldiers, brick by brick, if you will, stone by stone, tore the temple down, scraping the gold out of the temple wall because there was so much gold. And that's how and why the temple was destroyed. They didn't want to destroy it. Rome didn't want to destroy the temple. It was a, it was a wonder of the world. They simply wanted to get the Jews under control. And, um, but God said, no, temple's going down. And he literally took it down to the foundations because the gold had melted into it. And they, to the very bottom foundation stone, were pushing it off in order to scrape the gold out and take it home for them in their bags. The soldiers didn't get paid a lot. <laughs> so that's how it happened. He says, whatever is obsolete, you realize that the law became obsolete. Right? Gone. Obviously, it became obsolete. Now, the first section here is him reiterating what we already know about the temple worship of chapter 9. So I'm going to skip all this stuff. Hopefully, you know enough of it to follow along with me. But we're going we're gonna to pop right on down here <clears throat> to verse 8, chapter 9. It says, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not been disclosed while the um, existing tabernacle is standing, or whatever the, the original, the first, the word is first, literally. Outer tabernacle is the first tabernacle is still standing. He says, this tabernacle, which is a symbol for the present time, it's not a symbol anymore for the present time, because it's gone, but was a symbol anyway for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which what? Cannot make the worship 
perfect, worshiper perfect in their conscience. The word conscience is the ideal of the mind, the inner man, the spirit of the soul. And Peter uses the same word. In the Hebraic mindset, and the Greeks used the word for mind, nos. In the Hebrew, they used the, 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 a bigger term. As they would use it and they would understand the conscience. But ultimately what they're talking about is the inner man. So what do they mean by perfect in conscience? Your insides are new. You're a new creation. You're born from above. You're a new man, right? That's all he's saying. That's all we're talking about. It's very simple. It's very Hebraic. So he says, since they relate only to food and to drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of, and I hate this word, it's the wrong word, it's a terrible word, reformation. It is not the right word. It should be, and it is in the Greek, a new order imposed. It's two Greek words. A new order, and then the word imposed or implemented. God did not reform the law of Aaron. He got rid of it, and he replaced it with a completely new law and a completely new order. He didn't reform it. He didn't say, well, Jesus' blood and the blood of bulls and our turtle dove, and let's shake it up and let's go with that. That's reforming. Reformation is one of the worst words in history because when people popped out of the Catholic Church and they reformed it, that's exactly what they did. They just created lots of little baby Catholic churches with different functionary expressions. And all of them were struggling. That's why we have denominations today. Rather than annihilating the Catholic Church, they reformed it and thus got stuck still in some of the aspects and characteristics and beliefs of the Catholic Church, just expressing them in a different way, which is why we have the mess we have today. Rather than one unified church, there's all the mess that we have in all the different denominations with very little unity. In heaven, there are no denominations. There are no different beliefs. God only believes one thing. You will only believe what he believes. He will not be, wow, you have a good idea. Well, that was an interesting thought. Well, that's a cool interpretation. There won't be any of that. It's all nonsense. There is no such a thing. There's only one truth, one faith, one Lord, one God, one baptism, right? One Holy Spirit. There's only one. You either agree with him or you don't agree with him. And he's written it very simple for you to understand. So it's important that we do go into heaven agreeing. So that being the case, let's move forward. So he says in verse 9, to reiterate, we're talking about perfection again because that's the discussion on the floor. He cannot make the worship perfect in conscience. So since they... Relate only to food and drink. We read all that. Reformation. Okay, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as, the, as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more, what? Perfect tabernacle. tabernacle. Not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. So where is God? Where is Jesus' tabernacle? Yeah. It's in heaven, or he's about to tell us it's in heaven in the next verse. And not through the blood of bulls or blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained an eternal payment. An eternal payment. So redemption means payment pretty much, for the most part. So he entered into heaven with his own blood, splattered it, poured it out on the altar, splattered it on the walls. Now heaven has his blood as the cleansing agent that gets Satan out. 
It is the symbol of what uh, of the fact that God took care of business, basically. For if the blood of goat, if the blood of goats and bulls, and he just kind of reiterates again. This is he just keeps saying the same. That's why we skipped it in the first. He says it here. He says it here. He just keeps saying the same thing. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctified for the for the cleansing of the flesh. What does he mean by that? What he means is, in order to play the game and have temporal relationship with God, Israel was God's people on a temporal basis, not an eternal relationship. Israel was God's people on a temporal, that is to say, on an earthly premise. It was a social dynamic. They had to be saved in order to go to heaven. You weren't born into Israel and let's go to heaven. You had to be saved in order to go to heaven by faith, the same way anybody was always saved, going all the way back to Adam in Genesis chapter 3 when he said, I'm going to send a seed of the woman. He's going to crush Satan's head and then his heel will be bruised. Satan was going to be crushed. Adam and Eve had to believe that. In Genesis 4.1, they did believe that, if you understand the translation. They thought that she gave birth to the Lord in that moment. Yahweh, she goes, I've gotten a man-child, the Lord. And the text will say, with the help of an italics. It's an italics because it's not there. She thought, I'm having the Lord. This is the solution. She thought the Messiah was her firstborn. And logically so, God said the seed of the woman pointing to her. So she didn't realize, nope, 4,000 years later, he's going to come along. So anywho, he was the real solution. They had to believe by faith. However, their flesh was quote-unquote cleansed. In order for them to play the game, they had to go through the ceremony. And the ceremony was, you get the hyssop, and you get the bull, and you get the goat, and you put all the blood in the thing, and you put water in there, and you thin it out. And he's going to describe this. We'll read it. And then you take this little whip thing, and you put the blood in it, and he had to walk down the pizza-shaped, I guess, aisles of Israel... And like pop it and pop it and pop it. And he had to scatter blood all over everybody. So to inaugurate the first covenant, he had to pop this blood. And everybody's pretty white Sunday clothes got covered in blood. And then he had to do the temple and the, I mean, the tabernacle walls in and out. And he had to do the instruments and he had to do the altar and he had to do everything. So everything's covered in blood, right? And this then inaugurates the game, right? It's like shirts and skins. Right? Take your shirts off, okay? And so you're on this team and you're on this team. So in a way, this little game was a night. Their flesh was cleansed or it was set apart for use on a temporal basis, not an eternal basis, not a perfect basis, but on a temporal basis for the, for the playing of the game of the, the Mosaic Law. Right? That's what he did. So that was the blood of bulls. Okay, if the blood of bulls is sufficient to cleanse you, to play the game, how much more is the blood of Christ able to save you forever? It's like the comparison is so outlandish. It's funny, right? So how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God? Cleanse your conscience. There it is again. Your inner man birthed you from above. Another way of saying it. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Right? So you go from being in the Mosaic Covenant to being in the New Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant set you apart and cleansed you to play the game, not for eternity. The blood of Christ set you apart to have a relationship with the Most High God forever and ever. No game, real, real relationship, right? So, you know, hooray, like, Jenny applauses, hooray. <laughs> 
Verse 15. And he's just going to keep saying the same thing. For this reason, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the payment of the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive promise of eternal inheritance. In other words, here it is. He's just saying the same thing. I don't need to talk about it that much. For where a covenant is, there must be the necessity of the death of one who made it, right? It's like a living trust. Um, for a covenant is only valid when men are dead. Covenant meaning a will or a trust of sorts. Uh, is never enforced by one who still lives. Verse 18, therefore, even the first covenant was inaugurated without, was it, were not inaugurated without blood. And he's going to tell us now what I just told you. He says, for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and the scarlet wool and the hyssop, that's the, the sweet-smelling sort of perfume stuff, and he, and he sprinkled both the book, of the, uh, the book itself and the people. So he did what I said. He went through literally, if this saves a million Israelites, it was a long day. His arm must have been hurting. He's like, okay, now you shake my arm. You know, the Lord, God, please, make this like, like, put it on an Energizer bunny, plug a battery into this thing. You're just smacking blood over a million people all day long. It was quite the thing. That's why I used a whip, because you could cover this whole room in one snap. But pow, go poof, and it would plume blood all over the place. So it could cover, you know, 100 people or something at a time. Pow, pow, pow. And he's just walking down the aisles, covering people with blood. So... He had to do that. And then he says, uh, where were we at here? Blah, 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 Okay. Yeah, where? Verse 20? Yeah, okay. This, uh, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Yeah, just a qualifier. Verse 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle. Remember I told you, the tabernacle means tent. He sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. So it was a big, bloody, sticky, nasty mess, but it smelled nice because there's hyssop involved. So that's nice. And that's why the, the concoction that God put together smelled good because blood in itself just has this sort of irony smell. It doesn't smell bad, it doesn't smell good. It just kind of smells. And, um, but if you add a bunch of perfume to it, now it's a sweet-smelling aroma, right? Well, God symbolically, symbolically made a concoction that would represent the fact that his son's blood was a sweet-smelling aroma to him. Thus the game. So it says, and again, one of those bad translation moments here in verse 22, uh, and according to the law, it doesn't say one might almost say, it, uh, it says, according to the law, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. forgiveness. Right. Uh, verse 23. Therefore, it is necessary for the what copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Does it say that Yes, on earth you had to play the game and you had to use real blood, but it was bull's blood and the copies of that which was in heaven, the copy of the tabernacle, the copy of the instruments, the copy of, of, of the, uh, the altar, all that stuff had to be cleansed on earth with blood. 
but it didn't do much. But the, the, but the, the tabernacle and all the instruments and the stuff in heaven that exists there, now that had to be cleansed with better blood, with human blood, because God didn't kill Adam. Again, what we're talking about here is God didn't execute Adam. He did not judicially deal with Adam. People say, well, Adam died. No, that's not execution. That's not death, right? That's just dying because you fell into sin of your own recourse. Adam was supposed to be sentenced to death and then put to death by the executor, which would have been Satan, the angel of death. And so when Satan was not allowed to do it, he then accuses God of wrong. This is what happened. This was the reason why all this is going on. And that's why when Jesus died, God said, ha ha, I did it. It's over. You cannot be, you can't accuse us rightfully anymore. Now he can only accuse people for not believing in Christ and he'd be right to do so, which he still does today. But he's probably like, they didn't believe, kill them now, kill them now. <laughs> God's like, well, they still got a lifetime, but you know, he's, uh, he's, still, he's still using whatever methods he can to accuse the brethren, but it's not on the basis of righteousness and perfection anymore. It's on, the, it's on the basis of whether or not they believe and they have been made new or born from above. He at least has to play the game right. So verse 24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. But where did Christ enter? Into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's right. Christ appeared in heaven, offered his body, offered his blood, sprinkled heaven with blood. Why do you think he still has nail holes in his hands? Right? Because it's important that heaven know that he wasn't a sufficient sacrifice, right? His feet and his hands, his side. He's the only person there with like unperfect body, right? All the other physical bodies that are newly created are gonna be perfect. I wonder if his is gonna be made perfect in the end. I'd hope so. But if not, I'm sure it's not a big deal, right? I'm sure he's probably happy to represent what he did. Verse 25 nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with a blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, that's to say, according to God's administration at this right time, at this particular time in history, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that's exactly what he did. He put it away. Again, we talk about this all the time. If you ask God to forgive you after you have done a sin, you are disregarding the fact that he has already forgiven you. It is an offense to God's ears to say, God, forgive me. Because he has already forgiven you. People say, what about 1 John 1, 9? Yeah, 1 John 1, 9 is talking to unbelievers. Read the text. If you say you don't have any sin, if you're this guy who says you don't need to be saved and you're not a sinner, then you're wrong. You do need to be saved. And if you confess that you do have sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you 
of all your unrighteousness. In chapter two, you have an advocate with the Father. In chapter three, you're a child of God, pure and righteous and good as he is, and you're a seed or sperm of God, born from above, and you can't sin because his seed abides in you, right? So, so you have to understand there's a, there's, a, there's a context there. You have to pull a verse out. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that a believer asks for forgiveness after salvation because you're forgiven. It's best to say, thank you for forgiveness. I'm a bummed about this sin I just did. And how do we, how do we, give me the wisdom not to fall into that trap. Give me the wisdom and understanding to walk in newness of life. Give me the wisdom and understanding not to be tripped up by that encumbrance again. But asking for forgiveness is offensive. He's already forgiven you. They're already forgiven. It is, it's, it's so funny to me because I was teaching a wonderful lady this week who came all the way from Texas, flew in to meet for five days, and we met for five days. And she made the comment that, you know, because it's funny, she goes, what, first thing she said, sat down at the table, what she say? What's your method? She's like a K. Arthur type chick. What's your method? I said, well, I don't have a method. She goes, what do you mean? How do you preach? I said, I teach. I said, I teach the Bible. We go through it, you read it, and I ask you questions. And so she says, like, I don't understand. Not does not compute until we started going through. I said, if I have a method, it's this. Read it to believe it and believe it like a child. That is my method. You read the word of God to believe it. You don't read it to know it. You don't read it to understand it. You don't read it to be a smarty pants. You read it to believe it. Because if you believe it, you can walk by faith and therefore you can be rewarded. You can please God and you can actually accomplish something in your life. If you read it to know it, you just become an arrogant you know, behind. So it's uh, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So it doesn't do much for you, right? You read it to believe it. You believe it like a child. If you do that, you'll actually grow. So she was like, okay. So we did that. And she said at the end of the first day, she says, um, and the second day she communicated this. She goes, I recognize that I knew this stuff and I really just never believed it. Because it says I'm forgiven and I'm, asking, I'm treating him as if he needs to forgive me more. It says I'm a new creation and I'm acting like I'm a sinner when I'm a saint. It's like, this is ridiculous. She lives in two worlds and this is how a lot of Christendom does. They live in two worlds. They live in the world of religion, which you have to pay homage to. And then there's the I know what to say because the Bible says this to be true. Right? You say it over here, but then you talk, you, you live over here. You know what to say, the truth, but then this is how I live. And you never really think about the fact that those two are completely at odds with each other. They do not reconcile. It's just because, hey, this is the way everybody does it. So it's very important to understand that this is the trapping of, of humanity. But he says this. Uh, da, 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 da. By the way, the Catholics need to read this because they think that he's dying all over again every time you eat the Eucharist and whatnot. But, uh, and as much as it is appointed, verse 27, for men to die once and after this comes the judgment. By the way, people take that so far, so stupid. Well, you know, nobody's ever uh, had a, nobody's ever seen the Lord and 
or uh, been, you know, been to hell and back or been to heaven and back because, you know, you die once. Oh, really? Did Lazarus not die? Did the little girl not die? Did the person that was walking on the street and Peter's shadow fell upon, did they not die? Did the guy thrown into the tomb of the man of God in the Old Testament not die and was resurrected? Did all the people who had died and been dead for some time not get up and walk after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and walk the streets? Oh, I think they died and then they rose again and then they died again. You know, so when people say, no, you're, you're going to have that experience. You die once you're judged. It's like, do you not read the scriptures? These people who think they know too much, but it's, it's, it's annoying. It's, just annoying. it's annoying. Studio people. So verse 28, that's a little, that's just me just running off on a rabbit trail real quick there for you. So, uh, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait him. Now, this is important. We're about to get into the, the meat and taters now and we're summing up. 14 more verses. Obviously, he says the second time Jesus comes, first time is in reference to paying for sin. Weakness, right? In weakness, he was going to die. Second time, it's in relation to glory and power and honor. And that's, of course, him coming to set up his kingdom and reign on the earth and all that good stuff. So, but then he kicks in and he sums up everything we've been talking about. Now he's about to sum up in chapter 10, verses 1 and following. So we get to read this. For the law can never make perfect. That's your sentence, okay? Subject, verb, direct object. So the law can never make perfect. Those are drawn here. That's the sentence of the that of the text, right? That's the subject and the verb. Everything else is parenthetical. Everything else is parenthetical. For the law, since it has only a child of good things to come and not the very form of things. That's what we've been reading the whole time. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. We read that. That's what we read. The law was a shadow, could do nothing, accomplish nothing, but it pointed to the good things to come. Right? Can never, that law, can never, again, parenthetical statement, by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, that is to say, blood of bulls and goats, those blood of bulls and goats can never make perfect the person who draws near. See, what are we talking about today? Perfection. Let me say, this is the important thing to him. This is what's important to God. God, it is a requirement. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect to see and enter. Jesus said it himself. It is you must be born from above. You must be a new creation. You must be his child. You don't enter you, unless you are perfected through his power, right? So there it is. The issue on the floor in the book of Hebrews is the issue of whether or not you internally are perfect now and you are physically perfect later. So, those who draw near. Now we just bust through the rest. The rest of this is real short and sweet and simple. Otherwise, logical dedu deduction, would they not have ceased to be offered? Why would you cease to offer blood of bulls and goats? Well, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed one time, right, would no longer have what? Consciousness of sins. That's to say, they would say, I'm not a sinner. I've been made new. The blood of the bull, 
the blood of the goat, blood of the lamb, a sheep, cleansed me. Hooray, I'm not a sinner anymore. I need offer no more sins. I offered the one sheep, the one goat, it's done. But that's not what happened. What did happen? Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yeah, that's right. It was a game to tell you that you're a sinner and you have no hope in the game you're playing. 1,200 years of playing the game and it did jack nothing for you and you have no hope in playing the game. Why? Because God put Abraham to sleep and walked through it on his own. He made a covenant with himself that he would do it and that's exactly what he did. He provided the lamb. He provided the way. He provided the path for Christ. Christ walked it. He provided, the, 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 if you will, the trick Satan into fulfilling it. Right? Man didn't really have to do anything but just watch this thing go down. The demon Satan threw me and did the whole thing. So he says, and then he says what I call nine months before Christmas, as we've talked about before. Verse five, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but, be, but look, a body you have prepared for me. Again, this is an important word. You all know this already. Some of you here haven't been here. Maybe not, but the word body is the word soma. One of the funny things, which means embryo, it's sperm and egg. Jesus was not half Mary. He did not have 23 chromosomes of Mary. He did not enter into an egg from Mary. Jesus Christ was made, from a, was, put in, was made from a soma that God made, which is a sperm and an egg. And I couldn't believe out of all the people that I taught this week in that group, they were like, none of us understood that. All of us thought Jesus was half Mary. I said, how could he be half Mary? He'd have 23 corrupted chromosomes that are not worthy to pay for sins. So we would only be half paid for sins. I guess all the sins of my father's chromosomes would be paid for, but the sins of my mother's chromosomes would not. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. You can't be half sinful and half righteous. I mean, it doesn't even make any logical sense. Was it? He's not a sacrament. They're like, yeah, it's crazy. I don't know. I've never thought about this. So it was just funny. We were having a good laugh about it, right? Because it's so ridiculous. Uh, and right there, what do you know? The Greek word soma is the word body, and the word for sperm is the word sperma. So, and that's in 1 John chapter 3, talking about we are of God's sperm, and he translates it seed. So this is the word soma, which the women's store soma, most of you, if you shop there back in, anyway, it represents the word soma, it's a Greek word body. So Jesus was placed into an embryo. That was a dirt complex made of iron and magnesium and vitamin A and blah, 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 and made of dirt complex, just exactly like Adam. The Word, his name wasn't Jesus then, it was the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word got into that body. The Father names the body Jesus, right? Or Isa, Isu, and Yasa, depending on what dialect you're from. But he names it that, which means Savior. He gives it the, type, the name. We know what the name means, Savior. He can save his people from his sins. And then now he's eternal God, ready to be the proper sacrifice for all time. Now, this text points to the fact that you have the Father, the Son, and presumptively the Spirit, because he's the one who delivered the package, standing in one place. And he goes, well, 
you have not desired sacrifice and offering, but you have prepared a body for me. And thus, that's why he was the father's son, because the word did not make the body and get into it. The father made the body and the word got into it. And thus, it became the father's son. Otherwise, it would just be the father's observation or the father's buddy. Right. Because if the word made the body and got into it, then now the father doesn't own it and can't relate to it as a child. So this is a very technical transaction that took place. The son and God had to be God's sacrifice. It was God that overlooked Adam's sin. And the word agreed to this. And by the way, that's a tremendous act of love. Unbelievable thought that, that, that the word who existed in eternal equality with God, like Philippians 2 says, eternally has placed himself lower than the father, even now because he does in the end subject himself to the father, which he did not do previously. Right? Before then, they were just buddy equals. Now, he is subject to the Father and leads the congregation, as Hebrews says earlier in the book, in worship to the Father. So he's the guy helping us understand how to relate to the Father as a, as not just a mediator, but as the one who leads the brethren in worship. So here you have this Hebrews 10 thing going down. Body you prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sins, you have not taken pleasure. Yeah, duh, obviously. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written to do your will, O God. And he says, after saying above, sacrifice and offering and whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sins you have not desired, nor have taken pleasure, you have taken pleasure in them, by the way, which are, which are offered according to the law, in case you didn't read that already. <laughs> So the funny thing about the Word of God is it's just a lot in, it's, it's a very little amount blown up and repeated so many times. I think people get confused by these, by the repetitiveness, not because it's actually confusing. It says, verse, verse 9, now we're getting to the, to the climax here. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. He took away the first covenant in order to establish the second covenant. By this word, that word will. Now in verse 10, he says this, by this will. If you go back to verse 9, where he says, come to do your will, that's the will. So you can draw a pencil in your, I will draw a line from will in verse 9 to will in verse 10. In other words, come to do your will, O God, by this will. Verse 10, are you following me? He says, by this will, um, we have become sanctified or holy. We've been made holy. That's another way of saying we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Do you have to be made holy again? No. Where sanctified is simply the word holy. Why? Because in Ephesians 4.24, he says, Put on the new man which has been created according to God or in the likeness of God in true holiness and in true righteousness. There's no way to be with God unless you're holy as he is holy. Your spirit had to be made holy and one day your flesh will also have to be made holy. So you're going to up, Greg upgrade 2.0. Right? Then he says this, every priest stands again daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. 
waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool of his feet. So he's sitting beside God. And then he says this. This is the key. This is the big one. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are made holy, sanctified. I don't like those old King James words because nobody knows what the heck they mean. But it means this. If I have a glass, and we have glasses in my house because we have eight people. When we had, I ordered glasses with our names on it. So mine says Gregory and has a W on it. So everybody has a glass except John who broke his. But besides that, <laughs> guilty. My glass that has my name on it is sanctified for Gregory. Why? It has my name on it. No one else can drink from it unless the penalty of banishment or death. So that was not joke. So they, <laughs> it is mine. It's set apart. That glass has my name on it and it's set apart for me. So he says this. This is what you have to understand. When God sets apart someone in the process of setting them apart, because that's what holy means. It just means he takes you from here and he places you here for a purpose, right? Because there are vessels that are holy unto destruction or dishonor and there are vessels that are holy unto honor, as he says in various places. So there's bad holiness and there's good holiness. We're talking about the good holiness because he says that, let me define holiness for you. What I did was I set you apart and through the act of setting you apart, I perfected you for all time, once for all, period. The question isn't, did it happen? The question is, do you believe it? If you believe it, you're happy. You're at peace. You rejoice. You can't wait to share it. If you don't believe it, you go, That's, uh, you've been teaching a long time there, minister. Uh, getting hungry. You know? If you, if you believe it, it's good news. Right? How many times have you heard that? A little long-winded, aren't you? Uh, they wouldn't have made it very long in Ephesus when Paul was teaching. Uh, that dude fell out of the window. He taught so long. I mean, you know... <laughs> Questions, do I believe it? For by one offering, this, this verse says a lot. For by one offering, Jesus' is offering, he has perfected for all time the individuals who are being set apart by God. Isn't that a great statement? Yeah, that's a great statement. It's wonderful. And by the way, it leads to the great moment of, of personal intimacy in, in the latter verse. We can read through it just to, just to point to that great thought. It says, and the Holy Spirit testifies to us after saying, he just kind of repeats himself, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. I will put my laws in their heart and on their mind I'll write them. And he says, their sins and laws these will be remembered no more. Verse 18 now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there was no longer any offering of sin. There's forgiveness. No more offering. And he says this, therefore, this is what I want to get to. This is, the, this is a lovely picture to me. It's very personal to me, and I love it. 
Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a what? New and living way. Living way. Ah, now we're at the new birth again, right? New life. It's a living way, not a dead way, because the law, just things died and nothing ever rose from the dead. No bulls, no sheep ever rose. Jesus is a living way. New and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Since And since we have a great high priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. It's the word true heart. Not sincere, but true in full assurance of belief. There it is. In full assurance of belief that what he just said is true. In other words, the reason why you can boldly enter the throne of God, you can cruise right into the presence of God, is because of what happened. There's no veil between men and God anymore. Jesus' flesh was the veil. It, it opened up the avenue to walk straight in. The reason why you can boldly enter in your prayers into God's presence without any trepidation, without a priest, without needing any help, without needing anybody to pray with you is because of what Jesus did and what God did to you as a recourse of your faith. Perfected for all time, forgave for all time those who he is setting apart. God sets them apart, they're perfected and forgiven for all time. It says... Um, having our hearts, again, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed from pure water. Hear the nonsense of, oh, well, we're, we're sinners, still sinners. No, we're not, we're saints. Does he ever write to the sinners at Ephesus, to the sinners nope. at Colossae? No. Nope. no. It says that you hear the people quote Jeremiah, oh, our hearts, uh, filled, all of our righteousness is filthy rags. Really? Is all of our righteousness filthy rags? So all my rewards that I'm going to get to heaven are based off of filthy rags righteousness? That's nonsense. My righteousness is not based on filthy rags. My righteousness is based on the righteousness of God in me. Mm -hmm. Right? So my rewards are based upon true and good righteous acts and deeds that God are well pleased with. Otherwise, why would he say you can do that which is good, acceptable, and perfect based on God's will out of Romans 12 too? Of course you can. Of course you can know if you're doing what's right. Of course you can please God with your righteous deeds. People pull things out of context because they know what to say over here, but then they know how to live according to their religious commitments over here. Yeah, Jim. So it's not going to write context or write time. Yeah, we're, we're done. Yeah, so it's um, So can you explain the difference between a believer's need for repentance Versus their need for asking for forgiveness. Absolutely. Confession, right, is, is a great term. It doesn't mean asking forgiveness. It means discussing. It, it's a word agree, to agree with. So repentance is logical, right? But it's a logical deduction. It's not something I'm doing because I feel like I have to. It's something I do because, oh, I realize this doesn't fit my life, right? This is, this is not right. I am a child of light. I'm a new creation. So you see yourself going. You blow it in some way. Usually the child of God is not generally pursuing some sinful path, though they may have habits when they get saved that they're growing out of uh, in the beginning. And naturally, as you get, you're brought to the, that's brought to you, right? And you face it. Obviously, it, you, repentance means to stop and to turn and to go the other way. That's what penance means. That's all it means. It's a shuv in the Hebrew. You shuv, you turn. So, you stop, you turn to go the way, but, but what way am I going? So that's the renewing the mind so you may know how to please him, right? 
not conforming to the world, but being transformed by the room of your mind, because you'll notice that your flesh always has the answer. <laughs> I got this. No need to read the Bible. Don't pray. Don't need any wisdom. Don't seek out wisdom from, from, from wise men. I got this. We, we got to figure. Yeah, I know how to do it the right way. I know, well, I know how to do it the right way. Yeah, you got you're agitated or whatever. You got tempted. But I know, I know how to do it the right way. There's, there's, there's spiritual wisdom that helps you truly walk at peace and at ease and with power. Uh, and that's by being transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? Growing in respect to our salvation through the pure milk of the word. So that reality is there. But it's stopping wherever you, wherever you are at in the process of a sinful act or practice. And then it's recognizing that this doesn't fit my life. It's not consistent with who I am because my father doesn't lie. I shouldn't lie. My father doesn't lust over things. I shouldn't. My father doesn't steal. I shouldn't steal. You know, um, imitate. I'm imitating father as a beloved child. So, uh, and then you, you turn from it. And you may not know, the, but the problem is a lot of people will stop, they'll turn, and then they'll pretend like they know what to do next. It's best to just stop, turn, and go, I'm not sure what to do. I think I'm going to stand. You see the word stand all the time, right? I'm going to stand where I am. I'm not going to go that way. And I need to figure out how to take a baby step. Because I don't want to get 16 steps in and have to go back to the beginning. So I eat forward a little bit. You know, I know I can like, oh yeah, okay. I, I, I know I'm transforming my mind. I'm growing respect to my salvation based upon the true knowledge of Christ. And now I know how to walk in newness of life based upon that by faith not by obligation, law, or pressure, you know, in some way or another. And so repentance is that. It's where, it's a conversation. Oh God, yep, I'm, I'm not in the right place, I'm not doing the right thing, I said the wrong thing, I'm doing the wrong thing, I'm whatever it is. I'm in a place, I shouldn't be here, but I'm your child, this doesn't fit my life, give me the wisdom, here's the way I would give me the wisdom, first you stop, and you say, give me the wisdom on how to get out of this graciously, peacefully, whatever, uh, with power and strength. Like, first, I'm going to, I don't need power to turn from it. I already have that, right? That's like, your, that's your installment. So I can turn away from it. But now it's like, how do I negotiate out of this situation? And then how do I keep myself from getting this situation again? You know, what, what, what wisdom do I need to employ in order to, um, uh, both first in thought and then in action, in order not to put myself in this situation. So, and that's the way repentance would work, but it's a discussion. Like I'm talking to God. We say prayer without ceasing is, is a natural implication of a person who has that proper relationship with God. You're, you're uh, I would say you're always repenting, but you're always maturing. I would say you're always tweaking and sometimes repenting. <laughs> sometimes it's a big like 180 and sometimes it's like, oh, oh I'm a little off the road here. You know, you're like... Like looking at your cell phone and you step off the curb and whoa, what happened? Okay, I gotta get back over there and get back on the path. So a lot of times it's, uh, we're just tweaking our walk. And so how would confession work, let's say, to another brother or sister in the Lord that you have wrong? That's great. That's great. Great question. How would confession work to another brother or sister you have wrong? It's, it's trust is built through agreeing upon an authority outside of yourself, right? So if, if you make an agreement together, and the, the authority is just say the agreement itself, uh, or in our case, it's God, right? Let's take a husband and a wife, or a child and a father, or a child to a father. And 
the father or the husband has communicated something on on how life is to work and whatnot, so forth and so on. It comes to he's serving God and they're entering into that work and supporting him, so forth and so on. And one party, you know, the say the wife or the children aren't properly supporting and causing more trouble than good. At some point, you know, there's there's love covering sin and being patient and tolerant. At some point, there's a reckoning. At some point, you have to then wash somebody with the word and, and, and correct and instruct and all that stuff. And in that case, you're looking for the person not to go, okay, yeah, you're right, you're right, yeah, I was wrong, blah, blah, blah. That means nothing. That doesn't assure me of anything. I, in fact, I hate it, you know, because that just means you feel bad about getting caught, you know, initially in the flesh. But does your spirit mature enough, if they're a child, is their spirit mature enough to actually take a step forward, right? So at that point, I'm responsible as a husband and father to wash that kid in the Word, wash my wife in the Word, to help them grow and mature. They're responsible to believe it. I can't do that and apply it. But I then have to be responsible to wash by the Word to help them mature out of it. Hold on, I'll get to you, Megan. So agreement is what gives you comfort, what builds trust, and what makes you go, okay, I can take a step forward now because I'm not going to have you tie a rope around my foot and I take two steps and you pull my legs out front of under me, right? So agreement makes you relax, but the agreement has to be because their relationship with God is sound. They're agreeing with God. You're agreeing with God, and therefore you're agreeing together on a truth that's outside of yourself, right? In other words, we have supposedly our our our. our Government functions, at least it functions a lot better, but it functions only because there's an unmanipulatable piece of paper that's an authority called the Constitution that people have to abide by, right? So there's an authority outside of us that we can appeal to, that we can judge one another by, right? And that's what we're doing. We're saying God is our authority, His truth. Christ is our Lord. He's our authority directly, technically, because God has put Him in that position, and he's the one who defines what it is to be a man. He's the one who defines what it is to be a father. He's the one who defines what it is for a child to subject himself to their parent. He's the one who defines how, what a wife's uh, purpose is based upon the creative order. Again, it's not based on law. It's based upon purpose and his administration, how he functions. You're entering into it or you're going against it, right? So he's the one. So agreeing with him in whatever context it is is what gives you the comfort, the peace, and instantly gives you the affections between two people um, and restores relationship instantly, right? It's really quick. Now, there's still like the trust building because you have to see behavior being consistent in order for trust to be built, whether it's an employee, wife, kid, or it's a husband, it, it, whatever it is. The, the consistency will, will deaden the emotional flinching, you know? But... Uh, but that, that's how it worked. You would communicate that technically that you understand where you were in respect to the rebellion. If I were to say a wife to a husband, I'm just taking it as authority would work. It could go the other way too. But I would want to explain upward, as I say, when I was an employee, I did this, that I understand what they're wanting and that Christ, in order to serve Christ, you know, I'm going to present myself this way and to bring you honor and you glory and, and your success. And therefore, you know, you can trust me. You can trust me. Obviously, there's a learning curve. I'll probably make some mistakes. But know this, my commitment is to honor Christ by serving you. I did that as an employee. I told my boss that, you know, so that I rocked him. 
He's like, don't call me Jesus. I said, no, you're in Jesus' position. Don't say that. I was like, but you are. And whether you want it or not, your Jesus is your Lord and you're Lord over me. So he's like, oh. <laughs> it's funny. Did you have a... If it's peer to peer, it's the same thing. Same sort of thing. There's still an authority between you. So if you say, you know, there's a, there is a, would you say there is a requirements of the Lord um, as a saint yeah. in the Lord and a follower of Jesus? There is a confession, brother to brother. Let's say. Absolutely, hundred percent. And there's a when you verbalize it, there tends to be this heaviness that you've really hurt that person or yeah. whatever it may be or sinned against them. And I think that that is the really question is, you know, being cognizant of, no, yeah, the easy way, I hate to say the easy way, how is to go to God? Yeah. But it really is, you know, quiet in your prayer closet or whatever. It's a lot easier than to go right to the person. Well, Jesus said, don't come to me, right? right. Don't come to me unless you first went to your brother and offered the proper offering in Matthew 5. So he says, don't come to me and offer your offering at the offer. You know, first go to your brother, make it right, and then come and offer your offering. So it's it's like... People say, well, I went to God. No, 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 no. God says, no, I'm not hearing your prayers. It's like that first Peter 3, 7. I used a husband and wife context. It says, husbands, treat your wives in an honorable way, basically, so your prayers are not hindered. It's that thing. You can't really go talk to him. God's like, listen, you're my child. I don't have to discipline you because you're trying to, like, weasel out of this. You know, go make it right, and, uh, and then you can come to me, and we can all rejoice together, right? So then it's like high fives, and you enter boldly in the throne. He's all happy to see you. But and it's not that God kicks us out of his throne room. It's just that the relationship is hindered, right? The relationship is hindered until that is corrected with a, with a brother for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And by the way, if you did that against someone that it didn't, they didn't know and it didn't directly affect them, I would suggest, you know, there's no there's no precedent in Scripture to, you know, if you thought a bad thought about somebody, you don't want to go tell them I'm thinking bad thoughts about you. That's more hurtful than good, okay? Like, I now have people say that to me so many times. I'm like, oh, thank you. I feel so comfortable about it, that you hated my guts and thought I was a devil for a year. So, yeah. I've got a question. The, uh, we'll get back to yours. In, in Second Chronicles 16:9, God said something profound through a prophet. And I'm wondering how it applies now because you said... Know ye not, he was talking to King Asa. Yeah. Know that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole yep. earth, and know that he might show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect towards yep. him. Yes. How did God qualify that perfection under the covenant of the blood of bulls and goats where the blood atoned as opposed to the blood that redeemed in the new covenant? How did God qualify that perfection? They were saved the same way in the Old Testament they were in the New, by faith. Abraham was credited righteousness by faith, right? Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 16, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. So, I mean, he's pretty much just repeating this as he's going through the relationship with Abraham, this different task, these different covenants, these different expressions of, of his faith toward Isaac, toward uh, the stars of heaven, and so forth and so forth, toward having a son. So it was by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And that was always the way somebody was saved. And so you were made new back then. The difference between the old and the new covenant was one thing as far as the implications of salvation. One, there was no payment for it, right? So that was important. There was no payment. There was no resurrection. So God couldn't justify your salvation. He could only look forward to it. That's why Satan was the accused of the brethren because there was no justification for it. Once Jesus died and rose, it's like, okay, now there's a justification for the payment. There's a justification for the life, of perfect life he's put within you. However, in the Old Testament... The difference was 
His spirit didn't permanently dwell in the body as the temple. So <coughs> that would have been weird. We've never, we're so privileged. We've never experienced living on the earth with a new, newly created spirit and without the Holy Spirit's help. It's great privilege to have your body sealed up so that 1 John 5, Satan cannot lay a finger on you. He can't enter your brain. He can't enter your body. You're sealed. You're the Holy Spirit's temple full. And the Holy Spirit now is inside and he's the one helping my spirit serve God. He doesn't serve God for me. He doesn't get the rewards. I get the rewards. And so that's the difference between the old and the new covenant is the Holy Spirit permanently dwells as opposed to say Saul or Sam, Samson or or, or David, who even David was afraid, don't take your spirit from me. That wasn't losing salvation. That was losing his anointing as a king. Because once you lost the anointing or the messiahship, see, messiahship came through an anointing thing. You became a messiah when you became a king. You became a messiah when you became a priest. You became a messiah when you became a prophet. Those were all messiahships. It's the word anointing in, in the Hebrew. It's the word messiah, the same as Christ. And so you could lose that messiahship as a priest. You could lose that messiahship as a prophet. You could lose that messiahship as a king. And when that happened, he would pull his spirit out of them and they would lose their office. Mm -hmm. Not their salvation, but their office. And so as Jesus said in John 14, the spirit is with you, but shall be in you. And that was the difference. So that's the only difference of salvation. In the Old Testament, salvation was the same. Your new creation you went to paradise, as Jesus' uh, discussion. That's not a parable there because he gives names and parables own names. Um, um, he, there was, he goes to paradise, Abraham's bosom, and until Jesus died, they couldn't go to heaven. There was no qualification for men to enter heaven uh, until that point, from a legal standpoint. So that's how, and that's a great question. Wonderful. Uh, you had your question. I didn't want to go without. I didn't have a question. I was just going to add Right. The understanding as opposed to just the, I'm sorry, I'm sorry like this, the right. of like trust being built based upon understanding. So Megan's talking about trust being based upon understanding as opposed to, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Talking about, now we talk about self-awareness. Without self-awareness, there's no, there's no maturity. Because if you're not aware of where you're at, you're presumptive and you think you are somewhere else. Where presumption is the mother messed up in ignorance is the father produces a terrible, ugly, evil baby. You know, so it... Um, when you presume. So, yeah, self-awareness is the basis by which you can have a rational discussion. And she was saying, and I'm putting this on here for this purpose, uh, that, um, yes, I, to my kids, my kids would say, I'm sorry. I'd say, I don't care about your sorrow. Sorrow doesn't mean that much. I care about your understanding, you know, whether or not you understand what's going on, like how to relate to me. Because I, sorrow could be a human sorrow, and human sorrow doesn't accomplish anything. It could be, I'm just sad I got caught. You know, like, as the Christmas story says, adults love to say stuff like that. But we kids knew it was always better not to get caught. You know, it's like, <laughs> I always laugh. I'm like, 
That's the way I felt as a kid. I've taught my kids that's not the case. You, you come clean. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you want an understanding so you can establish a relationship so you can enjoy each other as a family, right? I don't want my kids just to do stuff because they're doing it. I want them to grow in dignity and honor. I want them to become mature children of God. I want them to relate to me and we all rejoice in that truth that they're developing as God's children in dignity and honor. And, uh, and, and through that, therefore, there are things that, tasks, things that mature them, tasks to be done, uh, 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 ignorance to be overcome with knowledge. There's all kinds of things that, that I expect of them, but it's not because I just, I, Greg's laws are the supreme laws of the universe. It's because I know what it is to walk in dignity and godliness, and I want my kids to also walk in dignity and godliness, and therefore sorrow can't be a part of that. I, I just want them to walk forward, right? I'm not requiring sorrow. Contriteness is a natural implication of self-awareness, right? Sorrow, contriteness, yes, it's natural. Like, oh, I'm bummed. Ah, that's terrible. Like, that's natural. Sorrow, oh, I'm really sorry. No, throw it out, burn it, you know? I have no, I have no time for that because it's not, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't, you don't go anywhere with that. You're just trying to get out of trouble and make you feel better as opposed to accomplish relational foundations for moving forward and being truly, uh, I should say, and truly enjoying people around you. In, in our case, God and, and our wives and husbands and children and, and, and whatever context you're in, friends, body of Christ. So, so you're always saying guilt clouds judgment. Yeah. So there, there's an awareness, a self-awareness. The implications of they have that tendency to not produce wisdom because it, it begins to, I don't know. Yeah, Beth was saying, yeah, guilt, I'm always saying guilt clouds judgment because when you feel guilty, you tend to make, you tend to try to fix it quick, right? As opposed to just back up and say, okay, guilt doesn't matter. The, 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 how do I accomplish walking forward in a relationship with God, with the people around me, with whoever, right? So guilt will immediately cloud your judgment, though. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm undeserving, or blah, blah, blah. As opposed to, it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what guilt I have and being because of some sin that was committed. It only matters that I know how to walk forward right now, right? Walk in newness of life. We have a new life. All things have passed. Behold, everything is becoming new. How do I walk forward? Second, uh, Second Corinthians 7-11 for godly sorrow worketh repentance right. and salvation. Not to be repented of, but sorrow of the world work of death. Right. There's two different types of sorrow. Absolutely. Yep. Second Corinthians chapter two, right? Yep. And and uh, so it's it's a it's exactly right. Godly there's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. Second Corinthians talks about the two different sorrows. The godly sorrow leads to a, yeah. a walk and 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 a walk in a relationship, basically summing up. And uh, worldly sorrow leads to death. In other words, it it just it does depression. It, it it leads to the death of relationships. It leads to the death of jobs. It leads to the death of life itself. If someone gets depressed enough through for worldly sorrow, and so godly sorrow leads to a turning and a relationship and a moving forward. And so, um, so that all kind of is good, great, great, 
I hope that helps. Um, I know he had a question next. Uh, Andy, uh, Andy? Uh, maybe perfect time real quick is uh, to add to that discussion that I would have with the father, even if I'm going to confess the sin to brother or sister. Um, it, old, I was taught early on, ask for forgiveness, all that stuff. But now it's more of just an acknowledgement, whether to the father, and this happened this week with Dan, Alex, and I, Jenny, there was a context for it. We saw wisdom from Greg and stuff. But um, in my discussion with the father, that it's like, I'm not asking for forgiveness, but I'm talking through it, and I'm just thanking you. Thank you for your favor. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your patience and tolerance towards me. Thank you for, in reiterating the gospel, thank you for paying for my sin ahead of time. So it's that uh, acknowledgement or agreement, that discussion with the Father of gratitude for him having already covered my sin. Now it's me in this self-awareness, becoming self-aware through your help that night um, to be able to articulate how I would approach the situation. Yeah, how do you walk in newness of life now? And there my <laughs> relationship and knowing him grows. My trust with the brothers and sisters grows because we trust him. Right. But no asking for forgiveness there, just the gratitude. Yeah. We're even able to talk about spiritualism and apply it. Yeah. Along with uh, Mr. Jim's question about confession to a brother. Yeah. What about confession to someone who's not a brother? Say you wronged them maybe a long time ago, or you did something wrong them, and they aren't putting themselves under the same authority. Would you still approach it the same way? Yes, because. I would to some degree, depends on how far and who. I would take that as a case by case situation, not just like a blanket wisdom. Um, but when I first got saved, okay, when I first got saved, that's when I had to go through that because now I'm, it's it's the Zacchaeus moment, right? He's in the tree. I'm going to make it right with everybody I've wronged, right? He says I'm going to pay him back. He doesn't say saved person as opposed to lost people. He says I'm going to make it right with the people I've wronged, and. When, it, when, it, when I first got saved, there were some things that, while I was lost, obviously, you, you do. And um, so I went to the individuals and said, I was lost, but hey, I, I apologize for defrauding you or wronging you or whatever it is. I wasn't saved then. And all it did was give me an opportunity to say, but now I've been saved and I have new life and my sins are forgiven. And so I would go right into evangelizing the person through the act. So it was... It was my way of evangelizing, but I didn't do it for that reason only. But it was the opportunity came from uh, going and making things right between me and somebody that I had um, hurt their feelings or defrauded in some way or another. Um, so yeah, it's it's good to do that. It, it it if it bugs you, you know, then it's good to to get off of you. When you do, you'd be happy. It's always a bit nerve wracking, though. Know, so, all right. Oh, uh, go ahead. Uh, where we was talking about how we entered into the tabernacle that wasn't made with hands. With the creation. Yeah. What creation is that talking about? Heaven. Not of this creation. Not of this creation. Yeah. Like, but into heaven itself. As in people creating it or on earth? No, he says not of this creation, that is to say this earth, this world, but he entered into heaven itself where that creation. Okay. That's the creation he entered. Oh, Jenny. Made without hands. That passage in John where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Yeah, John 13. Yeah. He says, you are clean because of the word. Yes. But unless I wash your feet, or unless I wash you, you yeah. have no part of me. Right. And then, and then you know, Peter's like, well, then wash all of me. And he says, I only need to wash your feet. Can you explain that we are clean, but we need 
to be washed, like our feet? Well, again, this is, this is, yeah, it's okay. It's, 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 it's a good question. It's a great question. Talking about washing. No, it's a great question. It, it, it's a simple explanation. On the one hand, he hadn't died yet, but what he's talking about is what's coming. As we walk in this, we are clean and our flesh is covered. Our flesh is not clean, right? We're, we're perfected spiritually, but our flesh is completely and utterly imperfect because it's a dying body, it's a dead body, it's a body of sin, it's a body of death. I mean, it's a mortal body, all that, right? So it is completely unclean as far as its essence is concerned. However, like the temple or the tabernacle, it, is, it has still the blood spots splattered on it. When I get a new body, I don't need blood spots splattered on me. I don't need to be covered by the blood of Christ. I have a new body, right? But until then, I do need the covering of the blood of Jesus, who, which is constantly covering my sins, right? So, which is why baptism is a one-time act, right? You get baptized because you literally die with him once spiritually, and you're literally raised with him once, and you don't just like, oh, this week, let's do baptisms again. Why? Because we died once, we raised once. But taking the Lord's Supper, which we need to do more of just because, you know, whatever we do, more as a reminder that this blood is constantly covering us, every sin. So there is a perpetual covering of sin that my feet get dirty as I go through this world and I'm going to make mistakes and I have to grow and mature out of being ignorant and out of being sinful into being righteous in my walk, out of walking like the world or conformable into a transformed new walk. And presenting my body rightly. So I'm going to, and as I do that, I'm getting dirty, right? My flesh is getting dirty. So I am constantly being covered, or if you will, washed by the blood of Jesus because of that reality. And that's what he's referring to uh, as we go. So if he's saying, okay, you're clean, but if you're saying you do not need to be cleaned, I have no place with you. In other words, the, the gospel is the gospel, right? And it's, Yes, you're clean on the inside, and your flesh is not clean on the inside, and your flesh does have to be wa uh, covered or washed constantly. By thus, we have an advocate with the Father because our flesh isn't uh, isn't ready. It isn't, it isn't permissible. It isn't acceptable. You know, it is not perfect. So that would be our cleansing. And so, yeah, we're constantly being clean and thanking Him for that in prayer. So, like, oh, thank you so much. Your blood covers my sin and. And, and, and endures with my mature, my, the, mature, the process of maturity. God is not surprised that we have to mature out of being sinful into being righteous. And he's not like all down, you know, sullen about it. He's like, yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's a father. And he understands the maturation process. So, um, and he says to comfort us. And you're constantly being washed by the blood of the lamb for that pro while you're going through that process. And Jesus' illustration is that. Is that while you're on earth, you will get dirty and you will have to be cleaned. Uh, Megan, did you have a question? You raised your hand. Okay. So does that answer, uh, Jenny? Is that does that help? But yeah, that's a great question, and um, it's a very intimate moment. I love that that moment, you know, in John thirteen. So with that, was, oh yes. Truth outside of yourself, and you've given 
Like, yeah. again, you saying it's contextual, like even the timeline thing we talked about in the past would have been context when you been like, yeah, that makes sense in context when it's like, but it's not going to, that person's not going to agree with you. Yeah. Or they're not going to see the wrong the way that you see it. Right. Because yeah, some people aren't aware of wrong because yeah, they don't yeah. see it that way. It's more about understanding, paying attention to how, what am I accomplishing in this? Do they see my actions are wrong? No, you know, um, they might not have saw them as wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I said it's a case-by-case situation when you go through that kind of thing, carefully thinking through it. So let's pray, and then we have another question with the chat and whatnot, but we'll end our time. Father, thank you so much for this great, great fellowship and this wonderful time of teaching and, and fun. And it, this, it's this a great time rejoicing in your one sacrifice uh, that has perfected us for all time, the ones who are being sanctified or made holy in that process of, of being, being uh, saved by you. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins and thank you for your love, first and foremost of all things. It's unbelievable, amazing. Thank you for preparing us to be a family for eternity with you. We look forward to it, and we have confidence now, Lord, as we hear these things, to rejoice and to talk to you, to enter your throne in our minds and our hearts and embrace you and to be with you. We look forward to it so very much. We pray that you would give us wisdom, help us to grow in our understanding of ourselves and mature in respect to our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.